Well, you've heard the reading of God's Word. If you haven't been here recently, we are, as you can tell, picking up in the middle of a chapter and in the middle of a story. But let me give you enough background so that you understand what's going on. Ben Haddad was, and if I switch to Ben Haydad, you know, old to habits die hard. Um, <clears throat> but Paul says it correctly. It's Ben Haddad. Uh, Ben Hadad was the king of Aram, the Arameans. The capital city was Damascus. You may recognize that name. Uh, there were a couple of Ben Hadad kings of Aram, and we're not 100% sure which one this one is. So uh, he was either the king who had broken faith with Israel when bribed by King Asa of Judah, <clears throat> broken faith being the key there, okay, and begun attacking their cities, or he was more likely that king's son. He already had control over the land of Naphtali, the city of Ramoth-Gilead, and substantial other parts of the territory of Israel. So he was an invading king who had power over a substantial portion of the land already. Think Putin in substantial portions of Ukraine that he already has control of, and he's invading, trying to gain the rest of the country, right? That's Ben Haddad to Israel. You'll have to be patient with me this morning with my voice. <clears throat> I sound better this week than I did last Sunday when I was preaching in South Carolina, so that you can be thankful for that. Ben-Hadad, in other words, was an enemy. An enemy the same way that we would think of Putin as an enemy. Not somebody who can be trusted not somebody who can be trusted at all. He was also obviously intent not just on keeping control of the land he already had that God had given to Israel originally, but intended to take full control unprovoked. Prior to what we read in this chapter, he demanded tribute from Ahab. And Ahab, the king of Israel, agreed to pay that tribute without ever fighting. In other words, Ahab said, I'm willing to pay the price for peace. And Ben-Hadad's response was, well... Let's sweeten the deal for me a little bit. A lot. He mustered the army when Ahab was not willing to pay all of the kingdom. And so he comes 
immediately breaking his word demands more tribute. What else do we know about Ben-Hadad? Well, he was the king who God defeated for Israel. But not content. He was the king who decided that God couldn't stop him if he came back and fought with Israel in the plains because clearly God was a God of the mountains where he had power, but he wouldn't be able to stop them if they fought in the plains. He's the king whose word is set up in contrast to God's word for Ahab. He says, thus says Ben-Hadad. I knew I would do it. Ben-Hadad. Thus says Ben-Hadad. And elsewhere, the prophets come and say, thus says the Lord. The whole point of the chapter is showing who is going to be victorious, who has actual power. The enemies of God or God. The enemies of God or God. Ben-Hadad was the king who declared he would leave nothing left of Samaria, the capital city of Israel, except a few handfuls of dust. He was not simply intent on defeating Israel. He was fully intending and publicly unashamed to say he intended to utterly destroy the capital city, to break it down to nothing. Which would also, of course, include the slaughtering of all of the people in the city. He was the king that God declared he would rescue Israel from because of his pride and for the sake of God's name. This is the king who had raised himself up against God. The king who had raised himself up against God in such a manner that even wicked King Ahab of Israel was going to receive help from the Lord. Wicked King Ahab who deserves no help whatsoever from God, who gives God no glory, who fears God not a bit. Murderous Ahab, faithless Ahab. God decides to save him for the sake of God's name and for the sake of God's people. And so God gives victory over his enemies to his people. But King Ahab wants Ben-Hadad as an ally, as a friend, as a brother. Is he still alive? He is my brother. What is wrong with Ahab? 
Nothing that we haven't already known from studying through this book, What's Wrong with Ahab? It's the same old problems that Ahab has had. Why, though? It makes no sense. Ben-Hadad is the wicked enemy. Ben-Hadad, we already know he doesn't keep his word. Ben-Hadad, who wants to conquer and destroy God's people, why does King Ahab want him as an, an ally? Why does he protect his life and save him after such a crushing defeat of Ben-Hadad's army by the hand of God? Well, we can only guess. The text doesn't tell us why Ahab responds this way. There's some pretty obvious guesses, though. Think about if you were King Ahab. Think about if you were in the position of being king over a people that could barely field an army when Ben-Hadad could raise an army well over 100,000 people, have it obliterated, and raise another one well over 100,000 people. That indicates that there's some power there, doesn't it? Ben-Hadad is not nobody. I may have gotten done listing all of his problems, all of the reasons why you shouldn't trust him. But he has power. He has authority. He can raise up 32 kings to join with him in battle against Israel. That sounds like a useful friend to have, doesn't it? Someone who has that kind of influence that he can raise up support from 32 different kings. So much support, in fact, that they will join with him in battle. Why else might Ahab want to be friends with Ben-Hadad? Well, if you look at a map, <clears throat> Aram was between Israel and the new upstart power, Assyria. And Assyria is as much worse as Ahab is much worse than the best kings of Judah. You'd rather have Aram attacking you any day than Assyria. So you probably want there to be a little bit of a buffer zone, right? A nice, a nice kingdom that could take the brunt of the Assyrians' encroachments Leave, leave yourself a nice buffer zone 
So Ben-Hadad could certainly serve that purpose. That could be a reason why Ahab wanted him as an ally or simply wanted him to stay in power. Someone who could raise 100,000 men against you more than once could probably do it again to fight against the Assyrians. And if you remove Ben-Hadad, who knows what will happen to that kingdom, who will come into power, whether they might not make peace with Assyria. Ben-Hadad is pretty predictable. He's not going to take anything from the Assyrians. He could be a handy guy to have in power over there. kind of reminds me of the way the U.S. and the CIA have dealt with various little countries around the world being playing kingmaker. Oh, let's put this guy in power. Let's put that guy in power. This guy will be helpful to us. Ben-Hadad will be helpful to the Israelites. You know, I think why Ahab wanted Ben-Hadad as a brother, a friend, an ally. It's because Ahab trusted in man, not in God. God had just saved him twice, but there's nothing like 100,000 men in an army to make you feel safe. We trust so easily in man. We fear man so easily. Think about think about if you've got a hundred thousand men on your side, you feel safe. Think about if you've got a hundred thousand men on the other side, you don't feel safe. Right? So either you trust in man because they're on your side or you fear man because they're not. The response, of course, as we've already read, is that God judges Ahab for his failure. For not executing Ben-Hadad. Just like earlier in the book, we end up with this side story of a couple of prophets. Okay, so in Israel, during the divided kingdom, which is what's going on now, you remember, if you were here, that there was a prophet sent down from Judah to warn the king of Israel. This would have been many years prior to this story was given very specific instruction by God not to hang around in Israel after he delivered the message, not even to eat there, but to return by a different path and to come straight back. That prophet ended up being intercepted by a man who claimed that God had said he was actually supposed to stop and spend the night and and have dinner with him. And so... 
the first prophet does, and God punishes him with death. We have a similar story here, this kind of time out, the big picture story of all of the politics and the you know, the world and country safety and the battles and the war and all of a sudden there's this little side story about a couple of prophets again. And what happens? God gives a prophet a message and the message is, hey you, come over here and bash me. God said to do it. That's weird. It's a weird message from God, right? The man refuses. The judgment is immediate. Death. For not listening to the word of the Lord. Because you have not listened, a lion will strike you. He leaves. A lion strikes him, he dies. It was also a lion that killed the other guy. These strange judgments make us uncomfortable, don't they? What's going on? Why does this prophet have to die? Well, much of the book of Kings is emphasizing the absolute inescapable nature of God's Word being obeyed. That we are to listen to the Word of the Lord. And that if we don't, we will not like the consequences. This is remarkable in part because it's prophets, right? I think I pointed out last time preaching on the other two prophets. God holds men who proclaim his word to a higher standard. And in some ways we see that higher standard right here in this passage. If anybody knew that the word of the Lord was to be listened to, it was one of the sons of the prophets. If the prophets refuse to obey the voice of the Lord, what hope is there for the nation to learn to hear and to obey the word of the Lord? If the pastors are hypocrites, preaching against abortion on one hand, and on the other hand, getting women pregnant and paying for abortions. What do the people learn? They learn that it doesn't matter. They learn that no matter what you say, no matter what God has said, it's still all just about living for this life here and now, for the lusts of the flesh, pride of the eyes, and the, whatever makes you happy now, right? And what happens? God's name is dragged through the mud. 
the watching world does not see holiness. The watching world does not see fear of the Lord. The watching world sees God's name dragged through the mud with the result that what? They mock. They laugh. They scorn. They laugh at God. And so just as this prophet refuses to obey God, just then, God's judgment comes. He's held to a higher standard even than Ahab is. The king of God's people. That's not to say that Ahab isn't judged. Ahab we also see is judged, isn't he? He just doesn't die immediately. God judges his people for disobedience. But the emphasis here is God's word is powerful. God's word is unavoidable. It's inescapable. God's word will and must be heard. Must be listened to. What does this mean for us? Well, I said before, think about if you were Ahab, why would you want to be friends with Ben-Hadad, right? What temptations would there be? <clears throat> and I think this is one of those places where it's easy to see the problem with Ahab, although you, you might think God is just being unreasonable, and we'll, we'll get to that. But if you look at Ben-Hadad with your eyes actually open, it's easy to see this guy has to be done for. He can't be put back in power. The consequences for God's people would be disastrous. But we are often like Ahab, wanting to make peace with God's enemies. Are there still enemies of God today? Are there still enemies of God today? There are. There have always been enemies of God and today is no exception. How would you know an enemy of God? It's not quite the same as an invading king, right? Putin doesn't become an enemy of God by you invading Ukraine. Ukraine isn't God's people, although much of the American media would like you to adopt that as your ideology. Ukraine's just another country. Doesn't make what Putin did right. Right? But it's not God's chosen nation. God's chosen people. Israel was God's chosen nation. And so anybody who attacks them becomes 
makes himself an enemy of God. But what about today? How can you tell an enemy of God? Well, it's still attacking God's people. Attacking God's people makes people enemies of God. Now, how do, how do God's people get attacked today? Depends on where you are. Some places in the world, the attacks against God's people look just like Ben-Hadad. Murderous, pillaging and destroying of Christian villages. Still happens. Why? Because they're Christian. Because they claim the name of God. Because they put their hope in Jesus Christ. Therefore, enemies seek to destroy them. How could you make friends with somebody like that? How could you make peace with somebody like that? You couldn't, could you? You must not. But those are not the only enemies of God that exist today. Anybody who raises up their fist against God is his enemy. And we must not make peace with them. What does it mean to raise your fist up against God? There are many anti-Christian, anti-God ideologies and philosophies, aren't there? Is it not to make yourself an enemy of God to declare that God does not exist? I mean, it's pretty simple, right? That there's no one out there, nothing to fear. No judgment could possibly come. Right? What about <clears throat> promoting the slaughter of innocent children in their mother's wombs? What sort of godless ideology is that? It makes you an enemy of God. There are many, many philosophies, ideologies, commitments that make us enemies of God. And here's where we begin to face the temptations that Ahab faced. What we want to see happen is we want to see peace on earth, right? Let there be peace. Envision world peace. You know, coexist. Now, that, my friends, is a godless ideology. That bumper sticker declares there is nothing different between God's people and Ben-Hadad. It declares Ben-Hadad must be saved. That's how you make peace. You coexist. You, you get along with everybody. 
Now, maybe that bumper sticker you hate and it's not tempting to you at all, but the concept behind it, the circumstances that you find yourself in, there are always temptations to make peace with God's enemies. Always temptations to make peace with God's enemies. What we want to do is we want to set aside judgment. This is one place where the Roman Catholic Church gets basic morality wrong by trying to use human reason instead of God's revealed word to declare the death penalty is immoral. What needed to happen to Ben-Hadad? He needed to be executed. The death penalty is set out by God as the right and proper punishment for murderers. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. He has made himself an enemy of God because he has attacked and struck the image bearer of God. And the punishment is death. Seeking to destroy God's image in man is a capital offense. But see, that's kind of a tough pill to swallow for some of us, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of extreme. And that's where we get with Ahab, we, we start to think, oh, maybe Ahab wasn't so crazy after all. You know, it's a bit extreme. The king isn't really a danger anymore. In fact, he could be a benefit if we kept him alive and he owes us one. Think about the good that could be accomplished by setting aside our differences. Executing him is only going to lead to the country that he's from being more angry and bitter about the defeat and then they'll be more likely to attack us in the future. See, we need to make peace. Be reasonable, like Ahab. We think we're more compassionate than God. We think we're more reasonable, more even-tempered. Our judgment is that Ahab is better than God here. We often pursue peace with God's enemies because we want to stop having enemies ourselves. It's really not complicated, is it? Nobody likes being threatened. Nobody likes being attacked. Nobody likes being in conflict that has real risk to them. Sure, there are some people who are bullies who like conflict when they're in control, but you know that they don't like danger because the moment you stand up to them, they run away, right? Yes, there are belligerent men. 
But nobody likes having an enemy. It's scary. It requires faith in God. But where would you rather put your faith? Would you rather put your faith in God or in Ben-Hadad to save you? What a silly choice we would make to put our faith in Ben-Hadad, right? What do we know about God? God will crush his enemies just like he crushed Ben-Hadad in this chapter. Ben-Hadad said there would be nothing but dust left of the city of Samaria. God said there will be nothing but dust left of his enemies. Who is right? God is right. But we still don't like having enemies. We still don't like it when people are upset at us, when they dislike us. We want to be liked. We want to be seen as the nice, kind Christian. And so we make peace with God's enemies. Two examples from this week came to me as I was thinking about this in response to a man coming out as gay publicly on Twitter. I saw a pastor respond with, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. What does that communicate? The enemies of God are watching. It says, don't worry. I'm not your enemy. I'm not a threat. I'm not going to say anything negative. You know that temptation, don't you? To show the watching world that you are at peace with their hatred of the Lord. That it doesn't bother you, that you won't cause a problem, that there won't be a fuss from you. He is my brother. Ben-Hadad, is he still alive? Wonderful. He's my brother. Now, of course, could say, oh no, that's not what it communicates. It communicates that he wants the man to change. And this is how we salve our consciences, making peace while claiming that we're not caving in, that we're not making peace. Right? But you can tell <clears throat> when the world has bullied Christians into silence. 
You can tell when they're unwilling to speak up for God's truth. You can tell when they're unwilling to say anything. And so can the world. The world knows whether you've made peace or not. The world knows whether you have caved in 50% or 75% or 100%. And if they've got you at 75% and you think you've made space for yourself by leaning back further against the ropes in the, in the boxing match, you know, it's the old boxer's idea that if I don't hit him hard, he won't hit me hard. You think Ben Haddad is going to respect that nice, that nice, gentle punch and, and the lean back? No, Ben Haddad is going to take full advantage of the 75% capitulation to make it 100%. And so we seek to become friends with the world, but we can't actually become friends with the world because they won't be friends with us. They'll say they will. They'll say that they'll give us a place at the table. They'll say that they'll be nice, that they'll be kind, that they'll be faithful, that they'll keep their word as long as we're nice to them. They'll be nice to us. They'll say, you can have your faith in private. And then they'll make sure you're never alone. I don't remember who I'm quoting right now. Who is that? Lewis? Yeah, I thought it was. They'll make sure you're never alone. We cannot serve two masters. How do we make peace with God's enemies? Another example comes to mind. Imagine a politician. We just had an election, right? Imagine a politician that is pro-choice. An enemy of God. Who claims to be a Christian. a member in your church. Imagine being the leader that's trying to figure out how to deal with that without it turning into an utter media PR disaster. There's got to be some way for us to deal with it without standing publicly up against this, right? There has to be some way of making peace with this politician. We've been doing this for 40 years in this country, 50 now. Surely someone has found a way, right? Someone, somewhere? Yeah, it's easy. All you have to do is make friends with God's enemies. That's the only way. Or fearing God. That's your other choice. James 4.4 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's what Ahab did, isn't it? He became an enemy of God. He made himself an enemy of God by making himself a friend of God's enemy. That's all it took. One little compromise. Seems so reasonable to let Ben-Hadad live. Or listen to Romans 8, 7, and 8. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That changes it a little bit and makes you see it in your own personal life. I've been speaking of the enemies of God over and over. When you come to Romans, he speaks of the enmity uh, towards God that remains within you. As Owen says, be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. This also is what Ahab refused to do. We cannot make peace with the enemies of God. We cannot make peace with the sin that remains in us. Either we're killing it or we're making peace, in which case it's killing us. Ahab's response is to sulk. How often when we hear God's judgment is our response to sulk? What did Ahab need to do? Interestingly enough, we're going to see Ahab do what he should have done soon. (laughs) Here, Not so much. He sulks. He goes home and sulks. Something that we see Ahab do quite a bit, actually. He's kind of a sulky dude. He doesn't like hearing what God has to say, and so he goes home and he sulks when he doesn't get his way. When God speaks... We must respond with repentance. When we're faced with God's word showing us our disobedience, we simply say, He's right. I'm wrong. And we seek His forgiveness. And you know, it's this wonderful thing. When you repent, then you're not an enemy of God. You're his friend. If you repent, you're no longer an enemy of God, but you're his friend. You're made into one of his people. Now that does mean that you'll have enemies in the world. But who do you want on your side? Ben-Hadad? Faithless? Wicked? Trust-breaking, attacking Ben-Hadad? 
or God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us not to sulk when we hear your word, when our sins are pointed out. Father, help us rather to turn in repentance to you. And Father, open our eyes that we may see the places where we have made peace with sin in ourselves. And help us by your Holy Spirit to begin the fight again. And Father, forgive us for the many times, many ways that we have refused to stand with you for truth. But we have compromised and made peace with the world. Not wanting anybody to know what we believe. Not wanting anyone to hear what your word has said. Not wanting, Father, to have enemies in this world. Father, don't let us be enemies of you. Grant us true repentance by faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's stand together and respond with joy in singing our praises to him.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.